You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. A contractor for Russia's FSB security agency was apparently breached. NSO Group says its Pegasus software can now obtain access to private messages held in major cloud services. Iranian cyber operations are said to be spiking, and Tehran is paying particular attention to LinkedIn. Colleges and universities are experiencing ERP issues and a minor wave of bogus student applications. Equifax receives its judgment, and there's a sentence in the case of the NSA hoarder. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, July 22, 2019. The BBC's Russian language service reported late Friday that SciTech, a Moscow-based IT firm, had been successfully hacked. The company's website was defaced with a yearing Yoba face, and the attackers claimed to have stolen some 7.5 terabytes of data. SciTech is generally thought to be an FSB contractor. Among the data the attackers obtained and shared with hacktivist group Digital Revolution were screenshots of the target company's internal interface, including some employees' names and notes on the projects they were working on. The SciTech projects exposed included social media monitoring solutions and Tor de-anonymization tools. The Financial Times reports that the controversial lawful intercept shop NSO Group says it can access private messages held in major cloud services, including those provided by Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook. The claims are found in marketing pitches for an enhanced version of NSO Group's Pegasus tool. The ability to get information from clouds that are normally thought secure, notably Apple's iCloud, is new for Pegasus. Reports suggest that smishing is one possible attack vector for the spyware. This isn't a commodity attack tool. Pegasus is pricey. BGR says the price tag for Pegasus is in the range of millions of dollars. This effectively limits its market to government customers, and these indeed seem to have been NSO Group's principal buyers. CBS News and others report that Microsoft has observed a spike in Iranian cyber attacks since nuclear nonproliferation agreements collapsed. FireEye warned last week that APT-34, also known as Helix Kitten, is undertaking a large catfishing campaign via LinkedIn. Its apparent goal is espionage directed against the financial and energy sectors. Government agencies are also targeted. Catfishing, you will recall, is the creation of a fictitious online persona used to induce a victim to connect in some way. In this case, they are seeking to establish a connection over LinkedIn. Late last week, the U.S. Department of Education warned that there had been active and ongoing exploitation of the Aleutian Banner system. Banner is an enterprise resource planning solution widely used by colleges and universities 
to manage student services, registration, grade reporting, and financial aid. Modules also offer academic institutions tools for human resources and financial operations. Sixty-two colleges and universities are believed to have been affected. The attackers are using administrative privileges to create fraudulent student accounts. As many as 600 bogus accounts have been created in a single day, with totals over several days running into the thousands. The Department of Education says the phony accounts are almost immediately being put to unspecified criminal use. Illusion, which Education Dive says had patched the vulnerability back in mid-May, said in a statement Friday that there are really two issues here. First, of course, is the now-fixed bug. The second is the creation of fraudulent applications. The issue, Illusion says, is unrelated to the vulnerability in Banner. The company believes the criminals are quote utilizing bots to submit fraudulent admissions applications and obtain institution email addresses. Through admission application portals, quote. that's not an issue specific to Banner. Illusion recommends that schools adopt safeguards like reCAPTCHA to better secure their information. Dr. David Brumley is co-founder and CEO of For All Secure and a professor at Carnegie Mellon University, where he's also faculty advisor to the Plaid Parliament of Poning, CMU's competitive security team. He's got some thoughts on DevSecOps, specifically his belief that autonomous security is the key to fixing what he says is a broken system. Yeah, what we're talking about in DevSecOps is making all sorts of security testing part of normal development. It's part of this movement to shift left from doing security testing at the end of application development. To really making it part of the entire development lifecycle, this insertion of the sec into DevOps. What's been the practical implications of that? I think the practical implications are you get two things. First, you get actually higher reliable software. A lot of security tests are about how can you crash an application or take it over, which kind of sounds like security, but the business impact is often you have unavailability of your service. So I think that's really the primary impact of putting the second is you get higher quality software in addition to, of course, more secure. And this realization、uh, across the industry that this is a better way to go than doing your security testing at the tail end is that pretty much、uh, an accepted practice these days? I think everyone accepts the notion, and they're trying to figure out how to implement it right now. And so, how's that going? I think that it's going well, but it's not without its trouble points. What we're finding is a lot of security teams start with applications already developed, and that's really their bread and butter. And so, this idea of pushing it back to developers really requires you move from security teams to the developers themselves. So, we're talking about just sort of a, an ongoing collaboration between the teams and, and embedding the security teams in with the developers. I think so. I think there's really two ways we see it. First, you can embed security team inside the development team, or second. You can give developers better tools and better training about what security is going to check for. Now, I'm curious, with your role as a teacher, as a professor, how much of this is embedding that philosophy in with the students who are learning to be developers? I think it's a huge part. I mean, at Carnegie Mellon, we started maybe 10 years ago, starting to teach our sophomores about computer security. But I think we're one of the few. And the thing that's really interesting is when you start teaching developers about security, they just become better developers. They see all the different ways they can get things wrong. Humans are absolutely awful at assessing security, especially at the end. And we also know that they're under 
resourced. And so what we want to do is build autonomous systems that help take the load off a human, but also turn everything really into a more data-driven rubric as opposed to just a gut feel on whether something's secure enough or not. Can you walk me through that? Can you give me an example of, of how that would play out? When you go out and you, let's say you're doing a penetration test at the end of the application lifecycle, a lot of times you're just scanning for known vulnerabilities. And I tell you what, like when a hacker is trying to break into your system, they're not just scanning for known vulnerabilities, at least not the good ones who are trying to get into your system. And so what we're starting to do is add in tools that help build in security checks as you build and ship software. And a lot of that's actually about security testing. How do you, when a developer builds an application autonomously take that application and give it to something that's going to help almost like a penetration test and do that every time you release the software. And does that increase any significant friction? Does it slow the process down? I think it's one of those things of cost benefit. So some people will say it slows it down just the way software testing slows down anything, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's this short-term pain of, oh man, writing that test case or ingesting it into that autonomous system, that's extra work. But once you do it, it's absolutely beautiful. Because then the system does all those things that you used to have to do manually. One of the cool things about this tech, and it was really pioneered in the lab, is that as you learn more and more about the security of your app, you actually create an automated regression suite to make sure that you continue to check those things. And that also bootstraps the process next time you have a release. So when you add new code, it checks all the old things and then tries to find new things in the new code. That's Dr. David Brumley from For All Secure. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission announced today that Equifax will pay $575 million in its settlement over the Credit Bureau's 2017 breach. The agreed settlement doesn't address only the FTC's complaint, but figures in a global settlement with the Federal Trade Commission, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and 50 U.S. states and territories. The allegations hold that Equifax's failure to take reasonable steps to secure its network led to a data breach in 2017 that affected approximately 147 million people. Some $300 million will go into a fund that will provide affected consumers with identity protection. It will also compensate people who bought credit monitoring or identity theft protection from Equifax or who sustained other out-of-pocket expenses as a direct result of the breach. If $300 million isn't enough to cover such compensation, Equifax is on the hook to pony up an additional $125 million if necessary. The remainder of the amount will be distributed as follows. $175 million will go to 48 states, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico. The remaining $100 million will be paid to the Consumer Financial Protection Board in civil penalties. Former NSA contractor Hal Martin was sentenced to nine years' imprisonment on Friday for theft of classified information. As ZDNet observes, the government did not establish that Martin was the source of the shadow broker's leaks. That had been widely believed, at least in the more speculative precincts of the online world, but it wasn't borne out in court. Martin had taken a guilty plea in federal court, admitting to theft of classified documents. Nine years is a stiff enough sentence, especially when compared to the maximum of 10 years he faced for each of the 20 counts against him. It is, however, in line with the expectations set in his plea agreement. Martin's defense attorneys had presented him as a hoarder, a pack rat, and not a traitor. And after the sentence was passed, they pointed out that the government had not demonstrated treason or treasonous intent. They said his problems amounted to an extenuating mental health issue. The prosecutors didn't buy it, according to CyberScoop. This is not a case of hoarding, this is stealing, the government argued. 
and they noted that the fifty terabytes of information Martin had squirreled away in his Glen Burnie shed was not squirreled away in a disorganized manner. The presiding judge also observed that, for a hoarder, Hal Martin seemed pretty well organized. So, don't be a hoarder. But it may look better on Judgment Day if your house looks like the digs you see on the reality TV show Hoarders. Bad TV, but maybe not so bad in the courtroom. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. A story here from CNET, uh, and it's titled, More Than 1,000 Android Apps Harvest Data Even After You Deny Permissions. How is this even possible, Dave? (laughs) That's what I want you to explain. What's what's going on here? So these app developers are being very creative with how they gather your information. Okay. This article talks about one app in particular uh, from Shutterfly. Photo app, yeah. It's a, it's a photo app, and I think they sell books of your photos and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So the app will ask you for permission to use your location data. Okay. Right? And you can deny the app permission from the location data, but they're still getting your location data because you have to give it access to your photos in order for it to work. And if your photos have the geotagging information in it, there's the same information from another source. Hmm. So when you deny them access to the location data in the operating system, that essentially denies them access to the GPS receiver. Right. Right. So what's what's happening is if you're geotagging your pictures, then your camera has access to the GPS receiver. Your camera writes that GPS information into the photo. Your Shutterfly app has access to the photo, and lo and behold, there's the GPS permission right there in the metadata. So essentially, they get the data anyway. Even though you said 
yeah, well, it's 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 one of those funny distinction without a difference things. Like I, I right. said, I didn't want you to know where I am. Right. No, now, no fair going around that way. A Shutterfly spokeswoman said the company would only gather the information with explicit per- permission from the user. Right. Despite what the researchers found. You know, it's funny. There are other companies in here that are using this. They're piggybacking on other apps to get access to the information that that the user might not want them to have. Mm-hmm. And these are big name companies like Baidu's Hong Kong Disneyland Park app. Hmm. Right. They found a bunch of apps that are doing this. More than thirteen hundred of them. And there's going to be uh, a, this paper is going to be presented at Usenix Security Conference next month. Hmm. You specifically say no. I don't want you to do this, and right. they find a workaround. Right. Um, I know. You know. Overall, you're not a big fan of regulations, but boy, right. this makes me yeah. wonder: Do we need a bigger stick here to tell them they can't do this? Well, Google is going to fix this in the next release of their operating system. Okay. I, I don't know how they're going to do that, but it's not going to be available until uh, Android Q. I guess it's this demonstrates that we can't trust the app developers to do the right thing in good faith. Right. One of the things that the uh, that the researchers have done is they did notify the FTC of these apps. Mm, okay. They, they sent they sent this information to the FTC as well as to Google. So they disclosed the vulnerability to Google and then they told the FTC about it. All right. Well, then maybe that's uh, maybe that's a good maybe, solution. The yeah. FTC maybe there is could... some regulation coming, or at least some fines or some penalties. Now, yeah. th- what's interesting is that this is only research on Android apps. I'd like to see if this is being done in the Apple marketplace because I think Google approached this problem in good faith, right? Mm-hmm. Google says, all right, we're going to give users the, the ability to block uh, apps from, from getting their location information. And I can very easily see this becoming something that, oh, you know what? We didn't think about that. We didn't mm. think that apps could look at the photos and get the location information from the photos. Right. Or we didn't think that apps could look at some other app and get the, uh, the unique identifier for the phone out of that other app. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to lock that down. And, and Google is taking taking care of it in the next release of Android. Unfortunately, it's going to be a couple months before that's out. Yeah. yeah. Um, I outlined it over on a recent episode of Grumpy Old Geeks where I ran into something with, and this is on iOS, I ran right. into something with a an, uh, an app uh, tracking the food that I was eating, you know, trying to lose a few pounds. Right. And I started seeing ads for the foods I was tracking on Twitter. Huh. And despite having disabled tracking explicitly from this app. Right. Uh, The only food ads that were showing up in Twitter were foods that I was tracking in my weight tracking app. So uh, it could be a coincidence, may very well be a coincidence, but I don't trust that it is a coincidence anymore. Because you have to enter that food data into that app, right? Right. Yeah. So you you know they have the information. Exactly. Which is more likely, that the ad engine is so good that, which actually is pretty likely. Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? Or that they just took your information and said, Dave likes to eat. Eggos. Eggos. Ego right. waffles. Yeah, so, that's what it was. Ego waffles. Really? Yeah, ego waffles. Huh. Yeah, big, big, big hit in my family. Yeah, yeah. So I just it's this erosion of trust that I that I find troubling, and uh, hopefully we will evolve past this and come up with some system where uh, we can feel like we can trust these apps and these devices again. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, 
Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.